0: Gaming Street is brought to you exclusively by TSX Hero from Evolve ETFs, Canada's first e-gaming index exchange-traded fund. A brand new way of investing in the video game industry. Be the hero in your portfolio. Learn more at EvolveETFS.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Gaming Street Podcast, your guide to the business of video games. I'm Stephen Wong.
2: And I'm Olivia Silva.
1: This week, we'll talk about Sean Layden's sudden departure from Sony Worldwide Studios and we speak to Marvel Contest of Champions developer Kabam. But first, our top story. Ninja, one of the most popular Fortnite streamers on the scene right now, got scooped up by Mixer, Microsoft's equivalent to Twitch, at the beginning of August. Despite Ninja streaming exclusively with Mixer, the Twitch competitor hasn't seen much growth on its platform as a whole following the major acquisition. Olivia, what's happening here?
2: Well, it was anticipated that Ninja's move to Mixer would send the streaming platform skyrocketing, and to a degree, that's actually been seen. According to a report from Streamlabs and NewZoo, Microsoft's platform saw 32.6 million gaming hours streamed in Q3 of this year, indicating a 188% increase from Q2's 11.3 million hours. Furthermore, those hours took place across 3.9 million unique channels, also up from Q2's channel count of 1.95 million. However, the report added that gaming viewership fell from 100.9 million hours in Q2 to 92 po- or 90.2 million rather in Q3. On the flip side, data from Arsenal GG indicated that viewership across Twitch, Mixer, Facebook Gaming, and YouTube was dominated by Twitch during Q3 at over 75%. In September alone, Twitch garnered over 777 million hours watched, while Mixer was at the bottom of the list at just under 30 million hours. Now, some of the factors that we have to keep in mind for things like this is that it's back to school right now, which can always kind of create a seasonal drop in hours. You know, September, people are busy. People are going back to school. They don't have quite the same amount of free time that they did in the summer months. So Q3 Mm -hmm. is always going to have a little bit of an impact there, at least near the end. Additionally, though, Mixer, when Ninja first signed on with them, Mixer offered a free subscription to his channel until the end of September. And so with that, it's going to be really interesting to see if Ninja is able to maintain the same amount of viewers now that that subscription has kind of wrapped up for free. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if anyone still wants to really pay for his content and maintain that presence.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ninja had, what, over 200,000 subscribers as of March 2018? And that's not even counting his YouTube following, which had 22.4 million subscribers before he moved to Mixer. And within five days of moving to Mixer, he got over 1 million subscribers right off the bat. And now it's kind of sitting close to 2.3 million followers. It's not really a question of whether... Ninja can make it work, in my opinion. It's, it's a matter of whether Ninja's presence really uplifts the Mixer platform the way that other streamers uplift the Twitch platform in, in great and subtle ways. I don't think this is necessarily the slam dunk that Microsoft was hoping for, do you think it was a sound strategy for them to pursue or at least experiment with?
2: Don't get me wrong. It's it's a good idea because it's always good to have, you know, whoever is the most popular representing your brand in one way or another. And for them to be going up against a behemoth like Twitch right now, you know, that's kind of a David and Goliath situation to begin with. So for them to pick up Ninja is definitely one of the best things that they can do to try and get their platform further off the ground and try to kind of dismantle the level that... Twitch has reached all by itself. Because at this point, in terms of streaming platforms, I think it really does reign above the other ones by such a majority. I mean, as, you know, the previous report mentioned, 75% belongs on Twitch in terms of viewership. And that that is just insane. I think Microsoft might have actually been a little bit too late to the party on picking up Ninja, just because Ninja is known for his Fortnite content. It's worth noting that Fortnite viewership, while it's still quite high is starting to feel some of the heat from its competition. I think, you know, if they had picked him up maybe in January or just at an earlier time when Fortnite was really at its peak, it could have had a bigger impact on bringing him to the platform and that kind of ripple effect. But at this point, I'm not sure. I think they may have just waited a little bit too long.
1: Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that picking up one single high-profile broadcaster was gonna move the needle for the entire platform in any significant way to start with. I mean, Twitch lost Ninja, which was a big blow to it, but it's got five more ninjas <laughs> waiting to, <laughs> waiting to take his place. I'm wondering if it really comes down to Twitch was kind of there first and it, it has grown to be one of the premier live streaming platforms with YouTube as a distant second.
2: Absolutely. And the thing is, we know that anything Amazon gets its hands on is going to become a beast. Like Jeff Bezos, he knows what he's doing, and Amazon can all, can pretty much turn anything into a gold mine. And so with Amazon having picked up Twitch back in 2014, you know, we've seen this platform just grow and grow and grow. Yeah,
1: and Twitch has just been adding features and making partnerships left and right. And they even started their own Rocket League esports league uh, a few years ago. Wherever the the gaming trends have gone as far as live streaming goes, Twitch has been an integral part of it. I mean, they they all the major esports platforms use Twitch. And there are all these in-game rewards that viewers can get by tuning into the right programs and taking advantage of these giveaways and interacting with each other. So Twitch has done a fantastic job catering to its community, while Mixer has just been playing catch-up. And that just boggles my mind. It's, it's, It's just weird that Microsoft could have been so off the mark in trying to promote Mixer when it has so much going for it. Acquiring Ninja as an exclusive broadcaster was kind of like a beta test for them to see what would happen. And it, it seems kind of clear, it's it's still a little early, even though it's been about a month, it, it seems clear that Ninja's ship sails by itself. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> raise other ships.
2: Yeah. No, I, I fully agree, and I, I think we have to kind of take this with a grain of salt the way that we do with, you know, say, the first week of console sales or the first week of really anything. You know, we are in – We've he's now been on Mixer for two months now, which is cool and great, but now that initial, you know, oh my god, he moved platforms, oh my god, he ditched Twitch, Who who could have ever seen this coming – All of that has now subsided, and now it's a matter of lasting power and longevity. And so I think at this point, we just have to wait and see how Mixer does, and maybe we'll see them pick up some other big-time streamers. Who knows? Sony announced via Twitter that its worldwide studio's chairman, Sean Layden, is departing from PlayStation. No reason was given for the departure, nor has a successor been named. The tweet simply read, It is with great emotion that we announce that Worldwide Studios Chairman Sean Layden will be departing SIE. His visionary leadership will be greatly missed. We wish him success in future endeavors and are deeply grateful for his years of service. Thanks for everything, Sean. Stephen, is there any more info on his leaving?
1: Not at this time. The announcement via Twitter instead of by an official press release was a shocking surprise by itself, given that Layden has been with Sony for 32 years. He's kind of become the face of PlayStation at E3 press conferences over the years. And one of his most recent achievements was acquiring Marvel's Spider-Man creator Insomniac Games as a first party studio. So it's it's all very odd and possibly troubling since Sony is entering the transition phase to the PlayStation 5.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we've been waiting on news regarding the PlayStation 5 for so long now, it's been rumored for so long, and now we just got news that it is in fact confirmed for Christmas 2020. And so for him to be stepping back at, as you said, just a transitional, even critical phase for the PlayStation 5 and Sony as a whole right now, it's it's surprising to see him stepping back at this time. You know, he's, he's credited for bringing in PlayStation's golden era and with games published under his leadership, including, you know, Detroit Become Human, God of War, Days Gone. But for him to go dark without really any explanation you know there's no mention of retirement there's no mention of him moving on to other things maybe a different company other projects it's it's confusing and it's almost suspicious you know it's, it's yeah. like what happened like is is there problems at sony like what's going on
1: well i read a story on game recently that there was some sort of struggle within sony based on the globalization of the company uh, as Sony Worldwide Studios has become more of a a global presence. It was only in February of this year that Jim Ryan became PlayStation's new president and CEO, essentially switching places with John Cadera, who is now SIE deputy president. The story says that there has been this kind of power struggle between executives like Layden and Ryan, who has a very haphazard, sort of view of running the company like he wants he wants it to be a global company but at the same time the communication between all the different studios around the world isn't as tight as it should be and that's caused a lot of friction between laden who runs worldwide studios or ran and where Ryan wants to take Sony moving forward as we approach the official announcement of the PlayStation 5.
2: Right. So I guess at this point, it's now becoming a a matter of too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, everybody's coming in. They've got their different views. They've got their different opinions and also different strategies. So I guess if they're not aligned on the same page and the communication, especially amongst, you know, the different global offices is not coming together than the way it needs to be then I can understand why the the machine as a whole is starting to hit these hiccups. And, you know, perhaps in the case of Leighton, just stepping back, I guess he kind of maybe, this is all speculation, but maybe just sort of decide, you know what, like, this isn't working. I've wanted this to work for months and you guys are either not listening to me or not doing what needs to be done. I don't know. None of us know. But maybe he just kind of looked at the current situation, has made valiant efforts to try and fix it in the way that he felt it should be fixed. And if it's not coming through, then decided to just take a step back. Yeah. I mean,
1: I I wonder who's handling damage control at Sony right now. I mean, for them to just, like, make a major announcement like this via Twitter is just mind-boggling. It makes no sense. And it, it's, it's very disruptive. I mean... And one source told gamedaily.biz, this is the least amount of clarity we've ever had during a no, this is the least amount of clarity we've ever had this close to a new console transition. And he or she said that this is exponentially exasperating an already difficult process of transitioning to the new generation. And they said explicitly that this situation is making them very nervous.
2: I mean, it's also worth keeping in mind, though, that, you know, as as we mentioned, we just got confirmation today that the PlayStation 5 is officially launching next Christmas, right? So... With things like that still kind of kept under wraps at the time of this tweet, you know, they could be just trying to figure out their strategy as a whole at this point. And they may not have a PR-friendly explanation for what's going on just yet. There could be legal things involved, for all we know, that that make it so that they have to actually stay quiet about certain situations. And so, given the fact that a tweet is, what, 260 characters? Maybe 280 You know, if they put it out in a tweet, they're informing the public, they're doing what they should be doing, but they're doing it in such a way where it's like, oh, we can only say so much. Sorry.
1: Which leads
2: me to question,
1: what are we going to expect from the PlayStation 5 launch titles without Layden's leadership? My hope for the PlayStation 5 is that Sony doesn't rely too much on the remake formula for its launch titles, like revamping all the key PlayStation 4 titles so that they're playable on the PlayStation 5 with new features added. I mean that, <laughs> that'll that'll take you so far, but it's not it's not a slam dunk, in my opinion. The the real slam dunk is when first party games come out that are built specifically for the new platform. And that's, that's really what gamers want to see. They don't necessarily want to play the games that they played already with some extra lighting effects added in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I,
2: I agree with you, but I mean, in that respect, then, you know, the PlayStation 5, from, from what I've seen, is supposedly going to have that backwards compatibility, right? So it wouldn't really make a ton of sense for Sony to be putting these titles out again, you know, for PlayStation 5, if people can still play their PlayStation 4 titles on it anyway.
1: How many times are we going to play The Last of Us Remastered? And how many times are they going to remaster it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, they've they've been going through the remaster motions for a while now. I mean, even looking at like the Crash Bandicoot series and Spyro, you know, those are titles that were a big deal 20 years ago. And now they're reaching into the vault of like, okay, we need some stuff to put out there. Let's slap on some polish and uh, put these games back out there.
1: That totally makes sense with the PlayStation 4 because it's nearing the end of its life cycle. And exactly. Consumers need a good reason to move on from the PlayStation 4 to the PlayStation 5. So it'll be very interesting to see where Sony is headed right now without Layden leading their worldwide studios and, and getting their first party titles and getting their first party launch titles out there for the world to see at events like e3 where he's become kind of like uh,
0: a mainstay
2: i agree and once we get more information on this you better believe we'll be chatting about it here but for now here's a word from our sponsors
0: Gaming Street is brought to you exclusively by TSX Hero from Evolve ETFs, Canada's first e-gaming index exchange-traded fund. Did you know that three-quarters of all Americans have at least one gamer in their household? Esports tournaments around the world have sold out arenas and attracted big-name sponsorship opportunities. The video game industry has evolved, but where do you start if you want to enter and diversify in this exciting industry? Evolve ETF presents TSX Hero a brand new way of investing in the video game industry. Learn more at EvolveETFS.com. Vancouver-based studio Kabam launched Marvel's
1: Contest of Champions in 2014, and it has since grown into one of the most recognizable mobile games in the world. They just wrapped up the Marvel Contest of Champions Summoner Showdown at the New York Comic Con, where nine players went head-to-head to compete for recognition and an impressive isosphere trophy. Boasting over 210 million downloads since its launch five years ago, more than two billion hours played, and capturing $3.3 million in player spending last November alone, Marvel Contest of Champions is an undisputed success. We caught up with Kabam at Comic-Con, where they hosted the big competition to cap off the year. Luke Takauchi, executive producer for Marvel Contest of Champions, explains how the Summoner Showdown brought in some of the highest engagement numbers the game has ever seen.
3: We worked with Marvel to kick Summoner Showdown off in San Diego Comic-Con. And it's kind of just blown up from there. Like it's been one of the highest engagement um, pieces I think for both Marvel and us on their channels. And so every single, every few weeks we're flying out content creators and our top players to go head to head in challenges built by our team. And it's all kind of accumulating into this weekend where we have the championship or all the finalists coming in
1: and going head to head. So it sounds like Contest of Champions is taking a play out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe playbook and they're just launching this kind of expanded event that started in July and went on until October going from coast to coast from San Diego to New York City and it has been a great success according to Luke.
2: I'm not super surprised that the games are doing so well. Um, I mean, you know, the, the Marvel movies and franchise in terms of the movie universe has just been absolutely insane the last of the while. I mean, Endgame people were losing their minds and it was the <laughs> biggest deal that anybody had seen in a long time. And so for, for games like Contest of Champions to be gaining such popularity and so much engagement, I'm not super surprised, you know, when people are really drawn to a movie franchise characters, anything like that they want more
1: what I'm upset with now is that they're into the movie versions of the Marvel comics and not the comics, which to be fair are are really convoluted and confusing if you've been out of the loop for a while but it's like but it's like we have this kind of shared love now, but not really we we're, <laughs> we're kind of. <laughs> We kind of appreciate different personalities of it. And that's what games like Contest of Champions kind of embodies. Because Kabam works closely with Marvel and they actually get info about upcoming movies ahead of time like when um, spider-man far from home was ready to release they were able to get the designs for mysterio and the new spider-man costume and when the movie launched they were able to launch those characters at the same time in addition to that movies only come out so often throughout the year so they have to supplement their updates which happen monthly they literally update this game every month which is bonkers even for a mobile game, but that—that's the key to its success: the constant updates. The game gets a boost every time a new movie comes out, and the Marvel franchise, the Marvel brand, gets a boost whenever Contest of Champions hosts these kinds of events, so like the Summoners Challenge, so, the, like yeah. the Summoner Showdown. So it's. It kind of like this beautiful feedback loop between two brands working off of each other.
2: For sure. And I want to loop back to just the one comment you made about, you know, the people who are into the movies, but not the comics. I'm sorry, but that is just unavoidable with pretty much any fandom. Like, look at Harry Potter. Look at Lord of the Rings. You're going to have people who go to see the movies, but have never read the books. And then they have their own opinions, despite not knowing the source material. But looping back to Marvel... You know, given this Contest of Champions and even the Summoner Showdown, would we now kind of consider this like an esport? Because if it's getting competitive then and it's got this big of an audience, then where is that leading?
1: According to Luke, despite the high engagement and success and the fact that the crowds are, are approaching esports kind of levels, he doesn't consider Contest of Champions to be any kind of esport with these events. All the components are kind of there, like the summoner showdown can be considered, from the right point of view, as kind of like an eSports season. It, it spanned multiple months and it traveled across the country. And, um, and it had huge engagement numbers. And so, but he says that it's not an eSport. I think we got to figure
3: out the gameplay first. I think right now, because it is PvP-focused challenges, uh, it really lends itself well to kind of local events. But if we wanna start going into like leagues and stuff like that, I think for us it's really rethinking how we wanna set up these challenges. So it's gonna be a big work in progress to figure out how we break it down and kind of really push into an esport.
1: And I did ask him at what point a game like Marvel's Contest of Champions should be considered an esport. And here's what he said.
3: When you're actually playing the game, for me, like especially with Realm, you know, it's looking at like what is like that emotional experience you have when you're either playing the game or watching the game being played, right? I think that is more of an indicator of whether something has the potential to be an eSport versus like, okay, here's like key KPIs and what we're hitting in terms of like daily active users or monthly active users. Like obviously, there's, that plays a point. But I think the first biggest aspect for me is like that emotional response and, and that experience.
1: So when he's talking about Realm, he's talking about the newly announced Marvel's Realm of Champions, which is an entirely new spin off to the Contest of Champions game. Realm of Champions producer Megan McGregor also weighed in on the matter. So I think this game has a lot of potential, but it's going to be up to our players to decide that and get that. And this game in general is ready for that competition
0: and to watch your your friends play and stuff like that. So so to me, the most successful esports have always been very organic and very decided by the players.
1: So what do you think, Olivia? What makes an esport? Is it the game makers, the players or the watchers?
2: I'd say it's a little bit of all of the above, you know? Obviously the game needs to exist in order for the Esport to exist. So, you know, you need the developers, you need the people behind it creating everything. But then it also needs to have a certain level of engagement and a certain level of reachability where people can really get on board and cheer for teams, cheer for their favorite players, and really just be involved in the competitive nature of it. Certain games, you know, are kind of one player designated where it's it's good for one person to play by themselves, maybe with like a friend watching and hanging out or something. But ultimately, it doesn't have any kind of competitive ferocity that really brings in Crowds of people waiting to see who's going to win, like sitting on the edge of their seat, wanting to know what's going to happen next. And, you know, I think that so long as the game has that sort of competitive nature and perhaps an angle that hasn't been seen before. And it's, again, like it, it doesn't have to be about reinventing the wheel necessarily. You know, if it's like a first person shooter sort of esport. it's going to be kind of the same idea. You know, CSGO versus Call of Duty, for example, obviously there are very big differences in the style of gameplay, but ultimately the base content is kind of the same idea. Whereas, you know, with something like this, I think that especially if they can incorporate something like the Marvel universe into things. I think people are going to be very keen to see how that can play out in a competitive atmosphere.
1: If Luke Takeuchi's assertion that Marvel's contest of champions isn't yet an eSport is true, especially given that its gameplay is kind of asymmetric, meaning that the game was built specifically so that one guy playing in California could go head to head to some guy playing in South Korea. It has that globalization factor to it, so everything isn't necessarily timed in the same way so that it could capture a, b- a big audience. But their next game, Realm of Champions, is going to be more head to head and perhaps more esports friendly. Creative director for Marvel Contest of Champions and Realm of Champions, Gabriel Frazera, tells us a little bit about the
4: game. Realm of Champions is our new game that we're announcing here today. It's a completely different game from Contest of Champions, but it, they all live in the same universe, tell the same stories, they have connections that we're gonna reveal, but it's a completely different experience. Uh, Contest of Champions is a fighting game, one on one. This one is a multiplayer PvP, three on three, 3v3 game. The story of this game is being told in contests in small doses for the last few years. There's a lot of Easter eggs that we planted in the story. That is going to lead to this, right? Including a better world that's been in, in, in the Contest of Champions for a long time, but we never been there. You we never went there. So now we get to go there, but it's in a different game. But there's also a lot of transition between characters, right? Some characters in Contest of Champions will go to this game, and some characters to this game sometimes will visit Contest of Champions. One thing I will say this game is ripe for competition and for a spectator sport. Because it's a, a real time multiplayer team versus team, right? So, even more than contests, this is great for like live tournaments and stuff like that. Uh, we don't wanna say esport, but you know, it, it has all the components if we want to do like a more spectator sport and have tournaments like the Summer uh, Showdown. So, yeah, this game is being built to be like that, to be a competition.
1: I went to the Marvel panel where they discussed. Realm of Champions, and this game is going to be huge. The question is, is the world ready for two concurrent Marvel titles run by Kabam?
2: I think there's nothing wrong with having two games running concurrently like that, you know, and if they're saying that Realm of Champions is going to be a totally different thing within the same universe, then I think it gives, you know, the opportunity to appeal to a wider audience and an opportunity to bring in fans that are perhaps into a different style of gaming and if what he was saying about Realm of Champions being better geared for esports I'd be very curious to see how that plays out in the future um that being said as well though you know if if Realm of Champions ends up completely overthrowing contest of Champions in terms of popularity in terms of engagement then honestly, so be it, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, it's still going to be a Marvel game. That's going to more than likely do quite well because anything with that Marvel stamp on it is immediately guaranteed a certain level of success. So long as there's any ounce of love poured into the development of whichever game it is. And, you know, I think that it's going to be interesting to see the two games kind of be around at the same time and to see how, Fans and players kind of respond to these two games, and perhaps if one of them really manages to be the more popular of the two.
1: Mm -hmm. And obviously, Contest of Champions is seeing great success using its free to play model. However, some have stated that the rising costs of player acquisition and retention for free to play games isn't really a sustainable business model. It costs about $35 to acquire and keep a single player. So it's kind of getting nuts now. There's a lot of free to play games out there. Is free to play a sustainable model?
2: If it's $35 per player in a free to play setup, then No, frankly, it's not a sustainable business model, but I think a big part of that is contingent on how much money does this company actually have to produce this game and keep it afloat, you know? And if it's a game that's backed under the Marvel universe, I think free-to-play might be sustainable for them. And I think it might be doable because Lord knows Marvel has money. It's not like they're, you know, an indie developer trying just to get their mobile game out there or trying to just... Rein in a few fans and maybe make a few bucks so that they can, you know, get their next project off the ground. Like Marvel has the funding for something like this. And in saying that, you know, I think once you reach a certain level of microtransactions, a certain level of paywalls, then you're going to start losing players. As long as you have a certain level of you can play up to this point, and then, then you have to pay if you want to go any further. Like for example, Candy Crush. You know, Candy Crush is free to play for the most part, despite the fact that they quite literally bombard you with every opportunity to spend money possible. You know, you get your five lives, and then once you run out, you can either spend real people money to play more, or you can just wait and come back to it later when you're like back in the subway or wherever it is that you play it. And for something like that, I think it makes sense because it gives that opportunity to casual players who are just using it to kill a little bit of time versus those who are really committed to playing the game and being involved with it. As long as there's a decent amount of game to play that is free, it'll help with the overall availability. It'll help with people who are going to get into this and try it out before spending their hard-earned money on something that they may not even be particularly sold on. Business model wise, I don't know how sustainable free to play is if you don't have a major major company backing you. Outside of that, in terms of, you know, fans wanting to get involved and people wanting to play, if you're looking for high reception, paywalls and microtransactions are not the way to go. That's all the time we have for this week's edition of the Gaming Street podcast. Our show is a production of Gaming Street and Enthusiast Gaming. It was written by Stephen Wong and myself, Olivia Da Silva, and edited by Conrad Zimmerman. Our music was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod.
1: For more news and analysis of the video games industry, visit gamingstreet.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For Gaming Street, I'm Stephen Wong. We'll talk to you next time. Gaming Street is brought to you exclusively by TSX Hero from Evolve ETFS. Did you know that three-quarters of all Americans have at least one gamer in their household? That's over 164 million adults in the U.S. playing video games alone, and millions more in Canada. The video game industry has evolved, and so have their fans. In fact, professional video game players, also known as eSports players, have formed leagues with millions of fans around the globe. Investors have taken notice and created a professional gaming ecosystem. Since then, esports tournaments around the world have sold out arenas and attracted big name sponsorship opportunities. But where do you start if you want to enter and diversify in this exciting industry? Evolve ETF presents TSX Hero, a brand new way of investing in the video game industry. We've made it simple. Hero primarily invests in equity securities of companies listed domestically and globally and other issuers with business activities in the gaming industry. Our top holdings include companies like Activision, Blizzard, Tencent, Electronic Arts, Nintendo, Needy's, Nexon, Take-Two Interactive, Bandai Namcon Holdings, and other in the booming interactive home media entertainment industry. Find out if Hero is right for your investor profile. Learn more at EvolveETFs.com.